My name is Malavika Prasid, and I'm the host of Your Favorite Book, a podcast all about asking that big question, what's your favorite book and why? I have no real qualifications. I just really love books, and I love talking to writers and readers alike about the books that have inspired them, changed them, and make them tick. And today I'm joined by Simon Jacobs, the author of new novel String Follow, and we're talking about something very, very different compared to his genre of writing. We're talking about a classic, The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, one of the books that won Ishiguro his Nobel Prize, if I dare to say. It's a book that's been on my radar for a long time, but I never got around to reading till now. And Simon and I talk about everything from the movie adaptation to how this book can be misunderstood by its premise alone, to whether Jeff Bezos actually has a point when he talks about this book. More on that as you get into it. And just letting you know, this one does have spoilers, so keep an eye on the show notes for spoiler alerts and quickly avoid those times if you haven't read this book before. But otherwise, you should be in the clear as far as spoilers are concerned. And so let's dive in. Simon, welcome to the show. Um, I was going to ask you if the weather is any better where you're at, um, but from your book and from the pillow in the background, are you in Ohio? Uh, I'm not in Ohio, despite what my pillow, uh, what my what my pillow with a with the, in the shape of Ohio with a heart that says home on it uh, uh, <laughs> portrays. Uh, I actually I I'm in uh, Portland. I live in Portland, Oregon. Okay. Um, and yeah, I've been here for about a little over a year. Um, and I lived in New York before that, where I've where I was for most of my adult life. But my my formative years, you know, from age zero to twenty one, were in Ohio and Indiana. So Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, is is home for me. Hence Got the heart shaped pillow. Got it. Okay. It's probably, I, I thought I was right on the money with that. And I'm like, this whole, his whole book is set in Ohio. There's an Ohio pillow. I know exactly where he is. And I'm like, oh, probably should have asked that to start with, but. It's what I know the best. So that's why <laughs> that's what the book is about. <laughs> Absolutely. And for, for everyone tuning in. So uh, Simon Jacobs is the author of a new book called String Follow. And I'd love if you could tell us all a little bit about this upcoming book you have and about your yourself as a writer. Um, sure. So this book is a it's a it's a novel as uh, as as you may have gathered. It's uh, set in Southern Ohio, um, but it's a it's a novel about a group of Southern Ohio uh, teenagers who gradually are enthralled by a mysterious uh, kind of occult force that winds its way through their community. Um, so I would say it's sort of a, a coming of age novel by way of cosmic horror, I guess is how I would put it. I think that's a really great way to put it because it is exactly that it's horrifying in so many ways, but also very real. And that only adds to the horror mm -hmm. of this book. And so before I get started in asking about this, I have to predicate for everyone. I'm a wimp. <laughs> I don't watch horror. I don't, I don't read horror. I feel like real life is scary enough. 
Um, uh, but what I really liked about your book, as I mentioned, is that the horror is deeply rooted in real life and kind of the myth of the American suburb, mm. the Midwest suburb. And I grew up in the Midwest suburbs. I live in Illinois. I work in Indiana. So this is a part of the world that I'm very familiar with. And this alienation of being a teenager, this myth of the safe suburbs, when in fact, maybe they're not so safe and there's so much sort of under the surface here. Uh, I, I think reading your book, like the most horrifying thing is where are everyone's <laughs> parents? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. No, that's a, I, yeah, I really, uh, I really like what you, uh, how you, uh, how you put it there, because I think that, you know, so much of the, you know, so much of the like kind of horror of being a teenager just happens in your regular day, you know, just just happens in your day to day life. Like it's a, you know, this kind of feels a little bit like, a, you know, a horror book because that's kind of the way that it, <laughs> the way that it feels. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I guess to answer your, yeah, to answer your question though, uh, I, I made a, when I was writing the book, I kind of made a conscientious choice that, you know, the the parents and, you know, I guess adults in general were not going to be a part of the book uh, in any meaningful way, uh, because I felt that that was, you know, that that, that felt real to me as uh, in terms of the world that the characters were inhabited. It feels like there's there's no one there. There's no one watching out for you. And so for all intents and purposes. Yeah. That's kind of the case through the book. They're kind of stranded. Absolutely. Like each and every one of these characters, even though a lot of them commit these horrible acts and are hard characters to empathize with at times, each and every one of them, they're young people, they're children, and you empathize with them and you wonder like, who's mm -hmm. advocating for you? Who is getting you the help you need? Who is listening to you? And in many cases, that's no one. And unfortunately, something we see a lot of these days and the whole parentless aspect of it, it in my macabre sort of mind, it's like, okay, we take the mop, mop, mop of the Charlie Brown parents and just really age all the characters up and make everything much more horrifying. And here we go. That's a very simplified <laughs> way. Of no, but I think that's, uh, that's, that's very, that's very accurate to the, uh, to the reality of the book where the, you know, the adult, instead of, you know, being a physical presence, adulthood and adultness is sort of like this ambient, you know, like an ambient threat, basically, to these characters. Mm -hmm. Digging into your book a little bit. So the things that were occurring to me, one was, you know, the perspective you chose to take on this book. And maybe this is oversimplifying things, but I always feel like these days there's two ways to write about teenagers. One is, you know, very closely in the perspective of the teenagers, almost for teenagers, a mm -hmm. YA sort of lens. And then you have sort of the more distant, nostalgic look at being a teenager. And often those writers are writing about teenage life from their own childhood. So there's this dichotomy here, and you do neither. You have this sort of distant look at the teens from this uh, external perspective, so to speak, um, and but it's at the same time, we're very close in their minds and you're choosing to write about very modern teenagers. So tell me a little bit about how you chose that particular perspective to write in. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, for me, when I when I start a writing project, 
um, I sort of get into it via the tone. Like every everything that I write, I try to. Um, it always it always starts with uh, with kind of a tone that I'm trying to convey. So in this, I think the first line that I wrote for this book, which is one that you know persists, at, it's still at, near the beginning, but it's about uh, one of the characters, Sarah, and it was in the line is just Sarah's. Sarah was the kind of girl who could be convinced to join a cult. And mm-hmm. I had that line was the first thing that came to me. And that was sort of the launching off pad, you know, the launching off point for the rest of the book. And it really sort of set, set the tone for, you know, for the kind of voice that I wanted to, um, to inhabit in the book, which was one that was sort of uh, kind of wry and self-aware, but also very, uh, but also, you know, very, very close to the, characters emotionally and um so so that was sort of how i found my how i found my way to that um and then you know that just like working within that tone kind of expanded to the you know sort of all the sort of um the sort of all-knowing kind of uh, collective uh what's the, the first person plural form in which the, mm-hmm. you know, book is kind of narrated mixed, you know, with very close observation of these characters. Like you kind of get the sense of a, you know, like a, car- a, a camera sort of like zooming in and zooming out, like, and constantly sort of like moving mm-hmm. around and, and between them. So both very, both very intimate, but also distant, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It it adds this almost fable-like mm-hmm. quality to the whole story. This has all been written and we're being told it now sort of later on. Um, and the way all the characters sort of intersect, it adds to everything there too. And I'm glad you pointed out that particular line about Sarah because she was someone I was thinking about as I was reading the book because concurrently, and this was totally at random, I'm also reading Cultish by Amanda Montel sort oh. of in parallel. And I don't know if you've read that book. But I haven't, no, but I've, I've heard of it. So yeah, yeah, it's excellent. And one of the points that uh, Montel makes in talking about who is likely to join a cult and there's, she talks, she sort of unpacks the myth that it's people who are lacking in their personal lives, seeking direction, you know, coming from trauma. And while that can be the case, they found that in a lot of research, the people that tend to become parts of cults are optimistic people, people who are deeply empathetic, people who want to do good. And I saw so much of that in Sarah, this sort of ideal target. And it was just so interesting how the the research and those personalities came together. And that just made her role in this so believable for me. So sometimes it helps to read a bunch of things at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a nice uh, intersection for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And on the point of intersection, so one thing about your book, and anyone who picks up this book, which I definitely recommend you do, there's a lot of characters. You have a lot of characters in this book. And at times, it's hard to sort of piece all their narratives together and how they all intersect and how their relationships change. Eventually, you fall into the vibe and it all comes together. But I'm wondering about constructing the book. So you came to it with sort of a tone first, but then you're kind of parsing out the characters and figuring out how everyone intertwines. What was your organizational process like? Are you somebody with a bunch of note cards and timelines or how did you put this together? 
great. Yeah, great question. I am one of those people with a bunch of uh, timelines. Um, I have like, I think I remember at one phase of this book, I just had a, you know, I literally ha- I, I had like a day kind of a day by day calendar over I think the 17 or 18 days that the book spans Mm -hmm. and there was a column for each one of the characters and it was sort of like what where are they during the day where are they spending the night and so that was the you know I kind of had a you know I was able to track where everyone is you know where everyone is at a given time because I was jumping back and forth um you know so much between uh, between the different characters in the book. Um, and so, you know, so I, I tracked it obsessively, but, you know, this this large cast was not helped by the fact that as the book has, you know, developed over the last four to five years, um, the cast has only expanded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now the book is about 400 pages long, which is insane to me i can't like that i don't have 400 pages worth of things to say um but you know when the first draft that i finished so the book right now is about a hundred thousand words the first draft that i finished or not first draft that i finished but the first time that i believed i was done with the book uh it was about sixty thousand words oh wow and Usually when you talk to a writer and they talk about what what the editing process was like, it's usually like you cut and you cut and you cut and you cut. And the book is, you know, a third as long as it was when you started. But for me, uh, I, you know, I thought my, you know, my initial drafts uh, were so insular and so, you know, kind of closed off because that's, you know, I, I tend to be. Um, you know, I think one of my weaknesses as a writer or one, one th- not my weaknesses, but one of the things that I've, you know, worked on in myself as a writer is trying to, you know, kind of open up my writing to let people in. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I was, uh, you know, I had a really lean draft initially. And then what I realized I need, what I realized I needed to do was to sort of let the reader in a little bit by, you know, kind of, um you know, ex, uh, by expanding certain characters and like showing, you know, diving into the past a little bit to, you know, show, uh, you know, some of the connections between the, the past and present narratives and, you know, giving, giving, the, giving the, the story a little more space to breathe. So uh, over the, you know, over the course of the book's development, I w- as I was revising, it was just kind of getting longer and longer more people came in. I, have, I keep adding more columns to my <laughs> spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, in, and, uh, and, and to the point where we are today, um, which, you know, ultimately, I think it's, uh, I think it, I think it works for the book, because you do have this sort of omniscient narrative, uh, kind of narrator who, you know, and you're very much dropped into the book by like bouncing from character to character and being like, well, this guy was doing this, but at the same time, like there was someone over here doing that. And then, you know, they're, you know, that it just bounces around a whole lot. And I feel like it worked. It ultimately served the voice, you know, it's, it served the the voice of the book, but I, uh, yeah, it it was was overwhelming, not, you know, for, for perhaps for the reader, but for me as well. (laughs) 
I, I love how candid you are about this. And honestly, you telling me this started at 60,000 words makes me feel so much better as a writer. I'm in the process of writing a manuscript myself. And I'm like, it's a, it's like a 50, 55K manuscript. I'm like, no one's going to publish something this short. But I'm like, no, no, no. These drafts can grow. These drafts can expand. And that's the reassurance I needed right now, which I didn't know I needed. So that's I'm, very helpful. I'm glad to provide that. Uh, but I hope, you know, it, it could very well be, I think, I feel like it's just opposed to every other piece of writing advice I've ever read, mm-hmm. which is like, you should cut 40% of your book. I'm like, right? oh, how about adding 40%? That sounds right? good to me. <laughs> I have friends who are epic fantasy writers and they're like, oh, I've got 195,000 words to cut. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> um, yeah. It's a different process. But yeah. Um, on the topic of, you know, the book starting out very insular and how it sort of widens, I think that's really interesting because the more people you started incorporating the story, the more you realized it's not about these four or so characters that we start with. Right. It's about sort of a larger epidemic, a larger problem, this isolation that's inherent in some ways to being a teenager. And I guess that's what I'm curious about, because these teenagers, they're entrenched in social media. They're very much of this time. But at the same time, there's elements of this that harken back to the satanic panic of a couple generations ago and things like that. And so I guess my question is, has being a teenager changed at all, really? Or is it the same element of horrifying in just a completely different way? Yeah, I would say that I think it's uh, I think the experience is probably, you know, it's a similar experience, but I think now you just, you know, between like, I I guess the difference, you know, the difference between these teenagers growing up and, you know, like the ones in the book and the way that I grew up is that, you know, I think you, there's just like so much like the experience is broadly the same but it's like colored by so much in the way of you know kind of the internet and social media and like you know rampant like you know rampant uh violence and institutional uh you know like an in, in institute you know rampant like both interpersonal and institutional violence that while it's existed for centuries is now like in your face, like all the time. And you can always be reading about it. You're always, you can always experience, like you're never far away from someone who is experiencing it. And so it's just like, so the data of it, I think is just so much more pervasive and relentless than, you know, even, um, uh, you know, even, even 15 years ago when I was, you know, when I was a teenager. So I think like, you know, the, probably the broad experience of like teen alienation, you know, that, that tracks from generation to generation, I think, but I think it's just so much harder now because there's so much more noise and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, yeah. And it's much more kind of in your face and pervasive than, you know, um, you know, than I think 10 years ago, even. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's it's similar. It starts from similar feelings, and there's just so many more outlets and so many more, so much more input now from the internet right. and from all these other sources. And a global pandemic doesn't help much either with how isolated everyone is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But sort of broadly speaking, so as I mentioned at the beginning of this, I'm kind of a wimp and I'm new to horror and thriller and genres in general. And I'm wondering, as someone who writes in this space, do you have recommendations for someone who's looking to read more of this genre, maybe some underrated authors or titles? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, like for me, the sort of horror elements, you know, uh, kind of emerged because that's, you know, I, I was treating this as sort of like, okay, this is like the reality of a lived experience and it feels horrible. So I'm going to bring in some of these kind of, you know, I'm going to bring in these like horror elements because I feel like they, they help make that feeling, you know, all the more, all the more visceral, you know, and I think like the best, the best kind of, you know, horror is stuff that, you know, explores a, like, you know, explores a societal issue, like, through the lens of horror, you know? So I I feel like, man, I'm totally blanking on on this stuff. You know, actually, a book that does that really, really well and really interestingly, um, and also in the, you know, um, and also with a a, very gimlet-eyed Midwest focus is uh, John Darniel's work um so he well he just has he has a new novel out but uh called uh, devil house that i have not read yet but i'm very excited um but his book universal harvester um i think is a really good example of a book that you know is exploring exploring these really interesting, really thorny cultural issues. Um, but like is doing so with like the, through the lens of horror and like has those, and it's kind of billed as horror, but mm-hmm. like when you read it, it, you know, it really opens itself up. So universal harvester or, uh, his first book, Wolf and white van, I think, you know, I think does that, uh, does that in a really cool way, um, as well. You know, I think I always, I love, uh, the work of Amelia Gray, as well. Um, She's a, you know, a a really incredibly precise and inventive and surreal writer um, whose work uh, kind of includes, uh, you know, includes sometimes some, some, some of those kind of horror elements, but is really, um, you know, it's just uh, really, you know, uh, what's the word? I don't know, is, is both like both tender and vicious you know Mm -hmm. uh so she wrote a novel called threats that i love um and uh someone else who comes to mind uh carmen maria machado Mm -hmm. um uh her body and other parties i feel like is one of the best short story collections i've ever read um and that has you know i think a uh all of the stories in that really kind of juggle um genre in really interesting uh, in really interesting ways uh and and sort of like you know uh defy the the bounds of something that you would call uh horror or you know science fiction or fantasy yeah um so yeah those are yeah those are a couple off the top of my head I love those suggestions. I mean, I've read a little Carmen Maria Machado, but the other authors are totally new to me. And so this is definitely where I want to go because I I liked the horror elements being grounded in something Mm. so real and so relatable. And I just Googled Universal Harvester and it's the, the little blurb says, 
Jeremy works at the Video Hut in Nevada, Iowa, but the A is pronounced A-Y, and I'm like, immediately I'm interested <laughs> in this sort of Midwest dystopia. I love it. Um, so yeah, these are these are awesome suggestions. And I'm going to transition a little bit over to the book you chose for this episode, which in many ways couldn't be more different, um, but that's very refreshing. <laughs> and more so, the same. You know, good point. And we'll dig into it. But um, so this is a book, you know, it's been on my radar for the longest time. And when you suggested it, I was like, what a coincidence. I'm reading this right now. And so it was very timely. Um, and we were talking about The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro, pardon my pronunciation. Um, for those of you who haven't read this book, I'm going to provide a very brief synopsis. So in this 1988 novel, Ishiguro follows the inner monologue and memories of Stevens, a butler in one of England's last grand houses. Stevens is on vacation and uses the time away from his workplace to reflect upon many years of service, his legacy, and how he measures up the sum of his life. So very, very brief summary there. Doesn't really expand upon the many places that this book goes. Um, and as always, I'm going to do my best to avoid spoilers. And Simon, I warned you about that ahead of time. This book's definitely got some big ones. Um, I do think we need to talk about how this book ends. So I'll provide a timestamp the way I did for the 1984 episode and the Shadow of the Wind episode. So pay attention to that if you haven't read this book. But judging by how late to the game I was on this, chances are a lot of you have read this before. So um, before we dig in, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about when you first read this book and what its impressions were on you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, as I as you were giving that summary, I was reflecting like, isn't it insane that like the premise of this the premise of this like profoundly heartrending book is like a butler is like going on a country drive like yes. for a couple of days. He's like taking a vacation. But it <laughs> uh, it's so it so belies like the the like depths of this uh of this book mm -hmm. um so my my first experience with this book i think i read it for the first time um in high school um the edition i have here is like you know one of those like gold like the vintage uh mm -hmm. the like vintage international editions so i think i either probably got this at like at, you know half price books or or my parents basement i'm not sure which one where <laughs> i where i found it but at the time I was reading a lot of like I was really into uh, like uh, I think at this at, around that time when I was in high school, I was reading like Atonement mm -hmm. and I in like things like Gosford Park watch. You know, I really liked got the movie Gosford Park, like movies about, you know, stately English homes. You know, I was like mm -hmm. an ang kind of an Anglophile reader as a, you know, as a as a teen and, you know, um, you know, Atonement, you know, had like you know, has like a good kind of metafiction element and like, mm -hmm. so does Gosford Park. And, you know, I was into like upstairs, downstairs, like this was like pre Downton, you know, pre Downton Abbey before like everybody was into that stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, so, so I kind of gravitated towards, you know, a book about in, you know, a book about an English butler, like that sounded very interested, interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, I read it for the first time then. And I think since since then, it's probably the book that I think about, you know, that I think about moments from the most mm -hmm. of any other book. And, you know, it's one that I feel I, you know, I can return to every couple of years and read it. And, you know, I get something, something else out of it, like some other, 
uh, facet of uh, of it will will kind of show up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember, you know, I remember reading it for the first time and kind of getting chills like towards the end. And, you know, so every time I read it, I'm like reading towards that like one point that I remember very specifically from the end from like my first reading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of every time I go back to it, I'm like hoping it still works as well as it, you know, as it, as it does. And it does every mm-hmm. time. And I read it when I finished it last week. I was like, I'm satisfied. Like, this is still still working for me. Let's say you can tell something's a really good book. And I've seen this happen a lot on the show where, um, and I've talked about it myself, a lot of my favorite books, I've almost been afraid to read again because I'm like, what if it doesn't mm-hmm. hit me the same way? But sometimes right. a book just hits you the same way again, or or it hits differently, but you still get the impact out of it. Maybe you've grown and changed as a reader, but something about the book still resonates. And that's a sign of real quality. And this book to me it's so interesting because my reading experience and my sort of thinking about it and reflecting experience have been very different. So Mm. for me, reading this book, it's a very slow burn of a book and it's not a long book, but it's a very slow burn of a book. And for a decent chunk of this book, you're wondering, where is this going? And I do say like, it's definitely worth it to sort of push through and let yourself become absorbed in Stevens's voice and sort of becoming accustomed to his perspective on things because that puts later events into a greater light. But it is a bit of a slow burn of a book. And at times I felt like it was circling the drain a little bit on a few topics. And and I, I kept thinking about, I, I was reading this book and my father was, I was visiting my parents and my father looked at the cover and he's like, oh, is that the one they made the movie off of? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, that was the most boring movie. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, it won like 8 million Oscars. And he's like, I know, but the movie was so boring. And I was thinking about that. And I'm like, how do you make a movie about this book? Because this book to me is so cerebral and so much of it happens in summary rather than in scene, so to speak. And I haven't Mm -hmm. seen the movie. I don't know if you have, but to me, this was a hard book to imagine sort of in film. Yeah, they kind of, uh, so it's been, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but they, you know, they go for the like, uh, you know, lost, like lost romance uh, mm-hmm. kind of angle rather mm-hmm. than uh, than the what has my life been in service to <laughs> angle, um, you know. And but I think to your point, it is like truly the ultimate like slow burn. And so because so much of it is Stevens, the the narrator, who's, you know, the quintessential English butler, is so much of it is just him dithering, really, like, and (laughs) kind of, you know, uh, you know, reflecting on reflecting in incredible granular detail Mm -hmm. on, you know, his work and events, you know, events that have run at the house or like observing the countryside and pondering what the nature of 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 his profession and what it means to serve with the uh, you know with dignity mm-hmm. and all that stuff you know and i think it's like it's a slow like there's so much space given to that be, uh like almost you know like very intentionally by ishiguro be you know because like that's where this narrator's head is at because he's kind of like you know it it he's trying to keep himself from like reflecting too deeply on like the life that he's lived and who he's, you know, 
you know, who he's spent it in service to, basically. He's so deeply in denial to the point Mm -hmm. where, and we'll speak about the ending more concretely in a bit, but you can cut, once you get to a certain point in the book, you kind of know where things are going, but the, but you're not looking for that big reveal. You're looking for Stevens to sort of realize that himself. And you're wondering at what point is he going to come to terms with his own life? And we'll talk about that part of it, but I think the scene to me that encapsulated how heartbreaking this book was for me is the scene sort of in the middle of the book where Stevens is reflecting back on serving these foreign dignitaries that are in town. And meanwhile, his father is dying and he has opportunities to sort of take a break from his work and see to his father before he dies. But he does not. He, he, he says, I need to serve my role. And my father understands he was also a butler. And to me, it spoke to the character. It spoke to just how heartbreaking that situation is and how many misconnections there were, a theme that comes back later. But also it felt so profoundly relatable now in this time where we're talking a lot about capitalism and talking about the role our work has to do with us. And just that idea of like, hey, the job doesn't love you back. And that just sort of hit in a different way with all of that context in there. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it's like, you can read this book very superficially and like sort of, like I think that one of the brilliant things about this book is that, yeah, you can read it very superficially and like sort of pick up on very, you know, very like, and not pick up on a lot of these like undercurrents, like you, you know, you kind of can see the, you know, the like, oh, I missed my opportunity at romance and, you know, all this, like, you know, I, maybe I could have had a fulfilling life elsewhere or whatever, but you sort of, you know, it, it, it it's written in this, with this gloss of, you know, the, the sort of pride in uh, the sort of Stevens's pride in his professionalism you know, is the gloss with which the book is written. And this this book is like, I think kind of famous, uh, famously like Jeff Bezos's favorite book because really? he feels that Stevens like, like represents like the, you know, the, the height of like professionalism, which is just like, like what a, what a horrible, like what a, like what a horrible thing to take away from this, from this novel is that like, Oh yeah, that like Butler, man, he was like, he seemed to be real good at his job. Like that's how I want Amazon, you know, employees to. <laughs> to work. Jeff, I think you're missing the point, Jeff. If you're listening, yeah. I, I doubt Jeff is listening, but if he is, you're missing the point. <laughs> but yeah. And I think like that scene that you mentioned, like one of the brilliant, the, you know, one of the other brilliant things about this book is that, the way that 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 whole sequence is written, which is like, you know, Stevens, uh, you know, work, you know, basically like working a party and like working this big event at the house while his father dies literally upstairs. And, you know, he can't be pulled away to like say goodbye or like, you know, pay him more than like 30 seconds uh, attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's just being. Uh, badgered with all of these like inane demands from like the party goers while like people are coming down with like reports on his father's like rapidly deteriorating health. Um, So he's like sort of interfacing with 
these like dignitaries and then also, you know, the, the rest of the staff in the house. And there's like, you know, this guy who's like, I need bandages, like for my bunions, like, <laughs> please get them for me immediately. So it's like, it's almost like reaches the level of like, kind of an absurd, you know, th- this book has like elements of that, like sort of uh comedy of manners mm-hmm. and, you know, uh kind of like a little bit of absurdism in some of these sequences, but it's like undercut with like utter tragedy, you know, yes. that's just like so deep that like, even the, you know, even the narrator doesn't notice, like there are like several moments or at least there are at least two instances in the book where someone will be like, Stephen's like, are you okay? And he'll be like, yeah, of course I'm fine. Like, why do you ask? And they'll be like, well, you seem to be like crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just like keeps going on. You know, he just like can't, you know, he he, he doesn't, doesn't, uh, yeah, it's just in, in, I think, yeah, I think you said this earlier, but just in, just in like denial for so much of the, so much of the book. Ugh. Oh, it, it's it's really something to reflect on. And it, it's what makes the eventual catharsis at the end so much more satisfying. And so this is where I'm going to talk about the end. Everyone pay attention to the timestamps. They're in the show notes. There's your disclaimer. So sort of where the book leads up to um, is essentially we are constantly reflecting on the character of Lord Darlington, who was told to us through Stevens, Lord Darlington, the person Stevens has worked for for so many years, who has since died. And even before we're given the big reveal, we we are given these hints that Lord Darlington has fallen from grace. They're like, wait, you work for that Lord Darlington? And at times he obscures that fact and he wonders if that makes him not as good of a butler to not talk about it. And then later it's revealed that Lord Darlington, and this is post-World War II, was a Nazi sympathizer. And we're given that indication sort of I, I saw it coming as soon as he said, you know, we're being too hard on those Germans after World War One, And I'm like, oh, no, I know where this is going. And it just crumbles to bits in front of you. And and you can't trust Stephen's perspective on any of this. But you, you just know how this is this would be seen from an external perspective. And I just love that how Stephen's never takes a moral standing on it in any way. He's just reflecting on the fact that he never said something or did something or acted in any way. And I just found that so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where, you know, he sort of misses the larger, he's like, you know, he, he very much like misses the larger picture because, you know, his, uh, because his personality is so focused on these, on, on like the kind of minute details of his professional life and that it's so much of a given to him that he was serving a great man mm-hmm. like it just doesn't it doesn't occur to him the, um, the perspective is so warped there's that there's that scene where he's vehemently defending the fact that lord darlington was not an anti-semite and then he's like well except for that one time he made me fire the two jewish maids and i'm right. like well then um <laughs> yeah and he just doesn't yeah you know, oh, that's such a that's such a devastating scene, too, because it's like, yeah, he goes to Miss Kenton, the housekeeper, and he's like, you have to, you know, like Lord Darlington has said, you have to you have to make sure we don't have any Jews on our staff. So we have to fire these two. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, understandably, like extremely upset. And he just like won't he just like won't question it at all because it's right. just like a decision made by Lord Darlington that who, you know, what does he say? Who's like the the quote? I think that he yeah. I, I wrote it down. It's like 
there are many things that what he says to Miss Kenton in that moment is like, there are many things you and I are simply not in a position to understand concerning, say, the nature of Jewry, whereas his lordship, I might venture, is somewhat better placed to judge what is for the best. Oh and it's God. just like, man, like, yeah, just like, so it's like self effate, like, hmm. I just don't even, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like, you know, sort of a, it's a good take on the, like, just following orders sort of, uh, yeah. you know, um, sort of line of thought. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's horrifying. And then Miss Kenton herself, I, I found her such an interesting character. Um, and again, we're only really given her through Stevens's eyes, but even mm-hmm. with that, she, she has so much personality to her even in these limited glimpses it, the two of them just constantly denying each other the, their mutual attraction their mutual fondness for each other and just seeing just these constant missed opportunities I, I read this book kind of in January so I, I believe so we were fresh off the holiday season and I had recently seen a stage production of a Christmas Carol and you're thinking about when Scrooge is looking back as a young man and he gave up on his fiance who told him, don't work so much, like life is more about this. And it's a very similar kind of character. And eventually she moves on with her life and she decides to find happiness elsewhere. And Stevens is never really able to do that. And I don't know, I, I just found those interactions so quietly heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like his, you know, he has those you know, nightly Coco's with uh, Miss Kenton when she like works for the works for the house. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a clearly like, which he does not, you know, he does not portray as like particularly intimate, mm-hmm. um, you know, conversations or encounters, but it's like, but it's like, you, you know, they're, they're the sort of like, they're the sort of interactions that, you know, you know, would be like charged with kind of, you know, attraction or romance or something like that if they were rendered by any other narrator you know if miss kenton was narrating them and i think that's like such a good you know such a testament to the way that ishiguro really just embodies this narrator and you know it's really just amazing this book is really just amazing as a as you know a utterly controlled like tone it just really works so well Absolutely. Like you read this book and he does not deviate from this perspective. You would think he is a butler. Like he right. just lives this role and it's it's a masterclass in perspective in that way. And sort of looking at the book as a whole, even though my reading experience at times, I was like, okay, where is this going? This is taking a while. Looking back on the book, it's so impressive in how it's constructed and how it's paced and how it's plotted. It's definitely one of those books I would call a respect more than I like. Um, but I think that's mm-hmm. part of the reason this book has endured so long. It's so simple in its scope, but it 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 takes what it takes on and just executes that so well. And that's something to be admired. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's a, to me, at least like that's, that's kind of a hallmark of, of uh, Ishiguro's writing too. Like he really, yeah, I, I find that his, he, you know, his his work is like, like, he has this other book, less that was, I think, fo- directly followed, I think maybe directly followed The Remains of the Day, called The Unconsoled. Mm-hmm. And it's like, sort of, like, 
it's like if you took the experiment, the like experiment of doing the remains of the day, and then you like blew it up and made it really surreal. So it's instead of being, you know, tight 200 pages, it has, you know, it's 500 pages and is filled with these encounter, you know, and is filled with these like, it's about a, you know, a, a pianist who's going to give a, uh, who, who's like been, uh, who's like going to give a performance at some, you know, somewhere in Europe. And he's just like constantly uh, overwhelmed with like people asking him for favors and distracting him from like, you know, doing what he needs to do. And so it's like, uh, and so it's full of like these incredibly long digressive, like uh, conversations and like people giving him like really long speeches Mm-hmm. And it's like intentionally boring, I think, in like a lot of parts, like to, you know, so it's really interesting to like compare some of his books and the the, the modes that he that he works in where he like, you know, it's done so, so well in the remains of the day. And yeah. then you see and then he like takes those same tactics and like is like, well, what how can I stretch this to like its limit and does that in sort of, you know, in like a surreal way in some of his other books. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing, I mean, this is actually the first Ishiguro book I've read. It won't be the last for sure, but I know one thing about him, he's constantly taking on new topics and exploring new things. I mean, Clara and mm-hmm. the Sun is a big example, and that's his mm-hmm. recent work. I mean, it takes on totally different topics with the AI theme and all of that. And I mean, this is not a writer you can typecast in any particular form or genre, even if he's reinventing sort of ideas from the past. He's he's doing so in new and inventive ways. And so I'm definitely excited to read more of his book. And for anyone who hasn't read this book and you're looking for something that deeply embodies a certain perspective, and if you're looking for a, a slow burn, I think this one's, you can't go wrong in picking this one up. Um, and then sort of in those veins, I like to always transition to some recommendations. So this is the part where I bring up a, a book that I might recommend if you've read this one, if you like this one. And the one I, I chose to recommend is actually not a book I've finished yet. I've started it and picked it up at various points and I need to actually commit to it. But the one that's coming to mind for me is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, just embodying this one particular character and following them around a series of seemingly mundane events, but learning that the story is just how this character perceives the world and experiences life. I think that through line done completely differently in a totally different style, but that sort of one day or sometime in the life of this character and reflecting on the past is just done so well in that book too. I, I, that's really, that's really interesting. And I think the fact that, that Mrs. Dalloway, like, uh, you know, feels like a, a comparative book to this, I feel like is a testament to how, while this book was like written in the while remains of the day was written in like the late eighties, it mm-hmm. feels very much like it could have been written in, you know, 1956 when it's, you know, when it's set. Right. Exactly. Um, this is really, really cool. That's a great, yeah, that's a great connection. I love that. Yeah. And I was wondering, Simon, if you have a similar book that you might recommend. Yes, I have three. Um, Go for it. <laughs> so, I mean, if you like, if you like remains of the day, you will probably like, other Kazuo Ishiguro books, I would say, you know, go for Never Let Me Go if you like a English countryside setting, um, because that one is is kind of doing like Ishiguro is just a master of the self-deluded uh, and kind of uh, hidden 
not hidden, but the, I don't know, just a master of like burying, you know, his burying the tragedy under many levels, uh, you know, many, many, many levels of earth. So mm-hmm. that's a good one. Uh, Never let me go is that has that is like full of uh, you know if you if you don't know the premise of that you know don't look it up. It's full of it's 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 got many good surprises in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for him in a different if you're interested in a more dif- in a different stylistic register, I would recommend the Buried Giant, um, which is his kind of take on Arthurian legend, and is also a book where. You know, again, it has like just a couple of scenes that I think about all the time that are just like, you know, you know, where your chest like kind of tightens up when you think about it, just like some truly devastating scenes yeah, um, that are very, you know, of course, very understated and played for laughs. Um, so, yeah, so anything by him, really. Uh, the other book that came to mind as I was reading it most recently was... Um, outline by rachel cusk Mm -hmm. and you know why that strikes me as a connection is you know that that's a novel that's basically uh relayed in the form of like it's a series of conversations you know relayed by this very like self-effacing narrator who's basically just kind of letting people talk to her And so, you know, she's kind of channeling these other perspectives and you get these like very precisely drip fed details about about the narrator and her life. But, you know, you can tell there's a lot that she's, you know, purposefully kind of leaving off the page. Mm. Um, So I thought, you know, that that really struck me. Um, You know, I, I thought a lot about that book as I was reading The Remains of the Day again. Yeah. Um. And then, yeah, and then finally, like a uh, more recent book uh, is called Summer Fun by Gene Thornton. And that is a uh, a novel uh, about a young trans woman in living in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, uh, writing letters to a fictionalized version of Brian Wilson of the beach boys. So it's like an epistolary. So it's basically like an epistolary novel, uh, that is, uh, sort of a reimagining of, you know, this other version of Brian Wilson and like the beach boys. So you have, you know, but it's, you know, so you have this like kind of beautifully rendered and lush kind of, uh, description of the you know 60s and 70s and that whole era and it's like super super inventive and amazing and but it's all you know it's kind of filtered through this narrator who's who's kind of you know intentionally kind of swerving from her own past mm-hmm. and her circumstances and so I you know as far as like you know unreliable narrators go like I feel like that's a you know that that really you know, that book resonated with me too. And, you know, in conversation with this one. I love all these suggestions. And uh, I, I love that you picked Outline by Rachel Cuss because I literally put that on my nightstand and I'm like, I'm going to get to this one. It's like, you're reading my mind as to what I'm reading next. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, but yeah. these are excellent suggestions. Um, I'll have their titles all on the show notes for everybody. And before we close out today, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you and your book? Sure. So the book is String Follow. It 
is published on February 1st. Um, It'll be out in the world when you hear this episode. All right. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can buy it from your local collectively run or independent bookstore. Um, you know, if you go to simon-jacobs.com, you'll find various, uh, um, you know, links to, to, to buy it or to, uh, investigate it. If you don't, uh, have the means to buy it, ask for it at your, uh, uh, ask for it at your local library and they'll hook mm-hmm. you up. Um, and you can also visit me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Mohako. Um, which is a nickname that I had, uh, well, a nickname given to me by one of my younger brothers, uh, when I had more hair than I do now. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I just have to shout out the writers that keep their old Twitter handles. I I spoke to Mina Suchkin a few weeks ago and she's like, yeah, on Instagram, I'm little butter because I cook with a lot of butter. And I'm like, I love this. Everyone keep the weird handles. Yeah. Yeah. But I never yeah. even thought about changing it. I guess <laughs> I, I don't know how long I've operated my Twitter account for. But, uh, you know, I mean, at this point, it's forever. It's forever. Okay. Absolutely. Well, everyone, I'll have links to buy Simon's book. I definitely recommend it. Um, and, and that's something coming from me when this is so outside my comfort zone. I greatly enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, so there'll be links to to buy the book. And then, Simon, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, glad glad that you enjoyed this this book being thrown at you from outside of you, <laughs> lobbed at you from outside of your comfort zone. I'm really I'm really grateful to 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 be invited and to to talk with you. This was a lot of fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at YFB Podcast, YFB as in your favorite book. And wherever you listen to shows, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever, see if you can place a nice review or a rating. You know, it really does help us over here in podcasting, and it would be much appreciated. And of course, stay tuned every Thursday for new episodes and at the very end of the month for our next short story book club episode. Um, To give you a bit of a heads up as to what we will be reading this month at the end of February, we will be reading The Ones Who Walk Away from Omila's by Ursula K. Le Guin. I'll be announcing later who our guest will be, but I'm very excited to dig into this uh, sci-fi fantasy classic. And so stay tuned for that and happy reading.